You know, as we just uh, prayed for together as a church, uh, Syria is a, is a nation that is an absolute mess right now. It's become at the center of a lot of our international uh, news. You know, all of our countries, all of our cultures, all of our lands bear the mark of the fall, right? We're all broken. All of our nations, all of our governments are broken. But I don't know if there's a place in the world that you can look at more clearly and say, this, this is a broken country. This is a broken part of the world. It's not just a, a war between the government and rebels. It's not just good guys and bad guys, right? There's a half dozen or so different armed groups that are at, at war with one another in Syria that are battling with one another. Now increasingly international, internationally, America, Russia, other countries are getting involved. There's a group of people uh, in the midst of this Syrian civil war that's been going on for, I think, six or seven years now. Uh, known as the White Helmets. You may have heard of the White Helmets. The White Helmets, are, uh, their, their official title is the Syrian Civil Defense. But who, they're called the White Helmets because they wear white helmets. And what they do, they're, they're located throughout the country in the most afflicted areas of the Civil War. And what they do is when they see a plane going overhead, when they see the bombs drop and they hear the explosion, they immediately mobilize and go into the area right in the footprint of where the bombs have fallen. They go because there'll be these massive piles of rubble and they go in to dig out, to dig through and to find any survivors who may have survived the blast, to, to recover the bodies and bury the dead, uh, but also to, to find uh, anybody who's left in the, rebel, in the rubble. You may have seen on the news, there's a Netflix documentary about the white helmets. It's really, it's incredibly done. But you may have heard of, of one particular case where they dug for hours and hours and hours and then found a toddler uh, under the rubble. And his life was saved because of the sacrifice and them being willing to put themselves in harm's way. Very often, the, the government forces and others will drop a second bomb right on top of the first bomb. So these men and women know that when they go into these bombed out areas, they're taking their, their life in their own hands. They're, they're, they're going to be very much at risk is they go into these settings, and still, and still they go. And so it's amazing to see in the midst of a nation and a world in chaos and conflict, how these people, these men and women, enter into it with vulnerability, enter into it with love and mercy, risking their lives for the vulnerable. Even in the moments of greatest inhumanity, we can see these moments of goodness. And yet, uh, nobody... Nobody expects that the white helmets are going to win the war, right? That's not really what, they're not armed, right? They're not doing anything. Nobody expects that one day Assad is going to surrender to the white helmets and go, you know what? Your virtue, your mercy, your goodness has just put me to shame. Here, you guys run the country, right? Nobody expects that the love and, and mercy of the white helmets is going to leave ISIS to say, all right, we surrender. You know, you can, ha you can have the country. No, we're not accustomed to mercy and humility and vulnerability, actually accomplishing victory. And yet, that is precisely what we believe is set in motion when Jesus rides on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. That he comes into a war zone. He came into a world rife with conflict. He came himself bearing no arms, motivated only by love and mercy. He came ultimately not only to risk his life, but to lay down his life knowingly. And yet what Paul says here is that in his surrender, in his vulnerability, in his love, 
did the rulers and authorities of this world actually lay down their arms, they lay down their crowns, and they say, we're defeated. You win without picking up a sword. Right, the Jerusalem that Jesus rode into on Palm Sunday was a world as marked by conflict as any, any that we know. Right, Jerusalem was occupied territory. There was a, a government that ruled over Jerusalem from Rome. It was under the thumb of Caesar's empire, the most powerful empire the world had known. And then within that, there were, there were a whole range of Jewish factions that were vying for how do we deal with this pagan oversight, right? Some, of the, some factions of Judaism wanted to collaborate with them and say, hey, this is just what it is. Let's try to make the best of it. Others were, were, had revolution on their minds. No, let's, let's overthrow them. Let's have civil war. Let's kick off Caesar, even if it means losing our own lives. Others of them, religious leaders, said, you know what? No, if we can just get morally pure enough. This is the Pharisees that Jesus is often in battle with. Right? If we can just eliminate sin from Israel, if we can just be good enough and pure enough and right enough, then God will intervene and he'll get rid of Caesar. And so Jesus comes into this world. He comes into this world and he's riding on the back of a donkey, which, yes, is a symbol of peace. It is a symbol of humility. But it is also an unmistakable claim to be the king. On the backs of all of the Old Testament expectations, where it was prophesied that the Messiah would come gentle and riding on a donkey, that he would bind his colt, his, his donkey, to a vine, right? That was a, a, an image that indicated the Messiah, that he was riding on the back of a donkey, not because he was meek and mild, but because he had no need of a war horse, because he'd already defeated all of his enemies. And so when he comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, it's an unmistakable sign that he's saying, in a world where people vie for kingship and you believe that Caesar's king, I'm king. He's not king, I'm king. And furthermore, what Paul is starting to build out in this passage is that above and beyond and behind all of this claims of Roman kingship, all of this physical warfare and battle and tension, there's actually another war behind that that animates all of it. It's what he refers to here as the principalities and powers, right? The, um, the elemental spirits of this world, he calls them elsewhere. Which is to say, behind all of the Syrias of this world, behind all of the Roman kingdoms of this world, there are supernatural forces of evil that work through human rulers, that work through human powers to oppress people and oppose God. Right, that Israel's main enemy wasn't Caesar. That Caesar was only, a, for all of his pomp and all of his glory and all of that, was nothing but a pawn in the hands of Satan. That he was nothing but a pawn behind the ones who ultimately hoped to a great, degrade human life and oppose God's kingdom in the world. And so in that world where everybody's vowing to say, who are, who are the real powers, the powers behind the powers of this world? Jesus comes in and says, well, it's not Satan, it's not the powers, it's not the authority. It's me. I'm the king. I'm the ruler. And he comes uh, to lay down his life, to do what Paul says here. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. You see, the Bible tells an unmistakable story from beginning to end of a world at war, 
of a world in conflict within itself. Right in the very first pages of the Bible, we come into the story in the Garden of Eden. Right, Adam and Eve made for perfect fellowship, perfect communion with God. If only they lived in trusting obedience with God. Right, but instantly, in the first pages of the Bible, there's opposition that slithers its way in. Right, Satan in the person of the serpent comes into the story to tempt Adam and Eve, to tempt them to, to distrust God, to believe that he doesn't really know what's best for them, he doesn't really want what's right for them, that if they just listen to his lies, if they just follow in his way and eat the fruit, that then they'll know fullness, and then they'll have real life and abundant life. And so Adam and Eve, falling for the lie, falling for the lie, go and, and find themselves in opposition to God. And really, from, from Genesis to Revelation, the story bears out as a story of cosmic struggle. The story between the enemy of God and the sin that he wreaks into the world. And those who follow him and, and, and following a pattern of selfishness, a pattern of godlessness, versus God's desires to make the world right and whole and righteous in him. Right, that these are two, two forces in conflict from the beginning of the world. That Christ, that, that God is resolving that conflict on the cross, that one day he will fully resolve that conflict. That's what Revelation is about, that's what it's pointing us towards that Jesus will resolve this conflict. But that we do come into a world at conflict. And now you notice the, the two words that Paul uses here. Uh, he uses, the first time we see it is in verse 8, uh, where he says, let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to what he says are the elemental spirits of the world. The elemental spirits of this world. Later in verse 15, he's going to call synonymously these things the rulers and the authorities. These are Paul's words for, as we said earlier, the powers behind the powers. The powers that, that use human instrumentality. You know, most of us never actually have a conversation with Satan, right? Most of us are never find ourselves in the, in the place that Adam and Eve were in, where there's a talking snake trying to convince you to, to sin against God. If you're if you believe that you've had such a conversation, come to the office, make an appointment, we can talk. <laughs> but most of us, most of us encounter spiritual darkness through human beings, right? We, we, we run into the, both in our own humanity, right? When we experience temptation, we experience oppression, we experience unbelief. We know what it is to feel like there's something inside of ourselves working against what's best for ourselves. Right, surely, if you're honest about your own life, you recognize that the product of your life isn't the product of your best intentions, right? That your life is a story of failed resolutions. It's a story of, of you trying to be better and more than you are. And sometimes it feels like, have you ever tried to run through like the hip deep water at the beach, right? Where you can't quite run as fast as you would be able to on the land? Well, the, the scriptures tell us that, that in this life, we are running against oppression. We're running against resistance. There are, there are forces that resist us, not only our own flesh, which Paul talks about here, right? That there's something internal to us. There's real fleshly, our own desires and our own selfishness that works against us. But there's real spiritual forces that, that take hold of our flesh, that appeal to our flesh, that tempt our flesh, and the desire to oppose us. So we experience that opposition within ourselves. Sometimes we, we encounter that opposition through others, right? When we see people 
who are bent on evil, who are bent on opposing God and opposing what's best. Right? We see it when, when sinful people get together and, and start working together. We make sinful institutions. Right? We make sinful governments. We make sinful economies. Right? That these principalities and powers work through human power to break the world. Right? We know this intuitively to be the case. Right? That, that the good things of this world somehow have become less than good because of these powers. Right? It's these powers, this, this, these forces of evil that take the good and natural desire for prosperity, for, uh, for, for fruitfulness in our lives, and twist it into systems of greed, right? Where we get rich and we don't care who has to suffer as a result of it. We don't care who has to get poor so that we can get rich, right? It's these systems, these principalities and powers that take the good things of love and romance and created sexuality, and twist it and turn it and make some into a world where something like pornography can become a multi-billion dollar business. Where the sex trade can, can, can flourish and become a billion dollar industry. Right? The powers take the good things and they twist them into bad things, into even evil things. And what we see in Colossians and what we see in the Garden of Eden is that these powers, these powers of Satan, are not especially creative. Uh, they've actually been going about the same basic strategy for opposing humanity uh, for millennia, from the beginning of our first parent's life. And the strategy works something like this. They promise us fullness on our own terms apart from God. They promise us that there's something out there that's going to make us happy, that's going to make us fulfilled and enriched. And then when we reach out to take it, they ensnare us and make us slaves. The enemy promises fullness and then uses it to ensnare us and to make us slaves. Right? The way that this is playing out in, uh, in the, for the Colossian church, Paul doesn't deal with it directly here, but he, he deals with it by way of contrast. In verse 9, he says, For in him, that's in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. See, what's going on for the Colossian Christians is that false teachers have come into their midst that are saying, yeah, 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 listen, I know, I know you know about the gospel, I know you know about Jesus, I know that you know this kind of basic Christian life, but let me tell you the secret. You ready for the secret? There's something more. There's something more for really, really spiritual Christians. There's something new for better Christians. And we don't know the, the full makeup of exactly what they were teaching. We think on the basis of what Paul's doing here, it had something to do with angels. It had something to do with believing there was some way for believers to escape the regular, ordinary Christian life in this world and experience this other kind of mystical, magical life. And Paul's saying, listen, there is no fullness apart from Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you. Fullness is not something out there to be had as you chase after some kind of enlightenment or some kind of esoteric spiritual knowledge. There's not a secret, right? There's only your life in him. And in him, you've been granted all of the fullness you'll ever need. Right, so, so get it. So this is what Satan was doing. He was saying to the, the church, there's something more than Jesus. If you'll just reach out your hand and take it. And so Paul says, don't let anyone take you captive. Be careful. He wants to, he wants to take you captive. Right, that's what happened in the garden. The serpent said to Adam and Eve, listen, there's, there's fullness here. There's something more than what God's told you you can have. There's fullness in this fruit. 
There's wisdom, there's real knowledge, there's more to your life. You can have it if you eat. And then he ensnared them. And he's trapped them in millennia of their descendants in the cycles of sin. What is it for you? Where are you tempted to believe that there's fullness to be had apart from Christ? Right, it's often found in what you, how, how would you complete this sentence? You know what? My life will be happy once I get blank. I'll be fulfilled. I'll have everything I'll ever want once I have blank. Maybe it's a marriage, right? Maybe it's a better marriage than the one you're in, right? Maybe it's well-behaved children or maybe it's children, right? Maybe it's the dream job that you've always wanted. Maybe it's losing that pesky 10 or 30 pounds that you can't seem to get rid of so you'll finally look like the people on TV or the people in the magazines. However you complete the sentence, my life will have meaning once I get blank. You might be like the Colossians. Maybe it's something spiritual, right? Maybe it's once I, once I shake off the, these lesser things, once I, once I achieve enlightenment spiritually, then things will be better. Then I won't sin. Or maybe it's something very base, just appealing to those good things that God's given you to want, relationships, acceptance, love. But beware, it's a trap. It's a trap. Paul says and wants us to know that there is no fullness beyond the fullness that Christ has given us. And so, uh, in Paul's telling of this story, is put, in Paul's telling of this story, the centuries and millennia of, of satanic grip on humanity were broken that week in Jerusalem. The week that starts with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the week that will end with the, the Roman authorities taking his lifeless body off a cross and laying it in a tomb. What Paul's saying is that by the time that was done, by the time Jesus' body was off the cross, the principalities and powers and rulers and forces of evil had been shamed and defeated and cast out. Now, we shouldn't skip over how incredibly ironic this statement is and how unbelievably hard it is to believe that it's true. Right, so messiahs, would-be kings of Israel and kings of the world, don't get crucified. Right, that was not the expectation that Jesus and his followers would have had, or that Jesus' followers would have had. Everyone would have assumed that his death meant the defeat of his own plan, of his own kingdom, of his agenda, of his followers. Right, at his death, the world economy went along very much as it had before. Caesar remained comfortably on his throne in Rome. Jerusalem ended up just as much in tension as it had ever been. His disciples were now under the threat of death. Paul himself, writing the letter to the Colossians, is writing from one of Caesar's prisons. Right, So writing from prison to a persecuted church, he says, Jesus ashamed, he, he subjected the rulers to shame, and he triumphed over them in the cross. How on earth can that be the case? How on earth can it be the case that the, de the seeming defeat of Jesus and the seeming defeat of his people actually ends and actually in itself enacts the fall of the rulers of this world, the fall of the spiritual oppression of this world? And it happens because Jesus, 
The only human being who his entire life never once sought a fullness outside of his father, who never once sought life outside of his father's will. Now, he was tempted, right? The scriptures tell us that his whole life he did battle with the forces of evil, right? Immediately after his baptism, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted with a fullness outside of his father's will, to be tempted with the kingdom apart from the cross, Just after the triumphal entry in the Garden of Gethsemane, he'll be tempted again to to get away from the cross, to, to avoid laying down his life. But he says what? To his father, sweating tears of blood, or sweating blood, he says, Father, let this cap this cup pass from me, but but nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Right? He submits his life again to his father. The one perfect one lays down his life in sacrifice to defeat all the brokenness and all of the sin of this world. And he's the only one who has the moral clarity and the righteousness to do it. Right? The problem that we have in this world is that I think we all, even, you know, even outside the church, I think we can all agree. We can look out at the world and agree that it's broken. Right? We can look at a world at war, a world, a world, a world full of uh, prejudice and violence. We can look out there and say that it's broken. The problem is we can't look out there and find anyone with the righteousness to to set it right. You know, as fractured and broken as this world is, as much as we find to disagree on, in the last couple of weeks, there was one thing that seemingly everyone on the internet agreed on, which was that that Pepsi commercial was ridiculous, right? Did y'all see the Pepsi commercial? So there was a Pepsi commercial. I'll narrate it for you so that you, you won't be able to capture the full ridiculousness of the commercial. Um, but anyway, Pepsi released a commercial. Due to uh, popular outrage, it's been pulled. Um, but here's how it works. So uh, Kendall Jenner, uh, she's a Kardashian, um, is, she's, she's in a modeling shoot. She's got a blonde wig and lipstick, and she's posing against a wall looking you know, cool and disinterested. Um, you can tell she's not quite feeling right. And then all of a sudden, this parade of protesters starts coming by. And it's a Pepsi commercial, so they're happy protesters, right? They're not, this isn't the, you know, the, the real kind of nitty-gritty protesting. These are people protesting with, with instruments, and they're dancing. They've got signs up. It's not particularly clear what the signs are for. Uh, they're red, white, and blue and have Pepsi logos on them. We know that. Um, and they're, 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 there's this protesting group of people that start dancing through the streets. This music is swelling. Right? It's, a, it's a group of people that's appropriately diverse. Right? There's people in Muslim dress. There's uh, people in street clothes. There's all, all different sorts of people represented. And as they come dancing by in their protest, Kendall Jenner looks out and she sees them and she in an instant right, seems the, sees the aching chasm of vacuousness in her life. And she takes off her wig and she smears off her mustache. Somebody tosses her a Pepsi. She takes the Pepsi, and she goes out to lead the protest. So right now, the the protest against all that's wrong with the world, right? It's, you know, and and we can, the the scene of protest has become quite familiar to us, right? From very, very important things, right? We've seen the the Women's March and the Black Lives Matter March and anti-war marches. All of those are seemingly kind of getting summed up and led by Kendall Jenner. And as she leads this protest, She comes to a wall of police-looking people, right, in dark uniforms and masks and very stern, coming, you know, against this glorious parade of progress. 
And right there, the two forces meet. And Kendall Jenner boldly walks up and offers this strong-looking, mean-looking man a Pepsi. And he takes the Pepsi, pops it, sips it, and he looks at Kendall Jenner and he smiles. She looks at him and she smiles. Everybody smiles. And guys, we fixed it, right? We fixed everything that's broken in the world. With Kendall Jenner armed with Pepsi, we, we figured out how to get, get along. So, everybody agrees uh, that this is the end of humanity. This is horrible. Um, and in the way that only the internet can, um, you know, it went on, Pepsi was in the sights. Right? And what was the, why could every human being with any sense look at this commercial and see that something was deeply wrong with it? Well, because it took real problems, right? The, the stuff that people are out there protesting about matter, right? The, the fractures of our humanity, injustice, all those things, they, they matter. Having a solution for them matters. It made light of it by thinking that we can fix what matters with a commercial. It further made light of it by suggesting that Pepsi, a multinational sucrose delivery system, <laughs> right, that is a billion-dollar corporation, is a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. That the Kardashians are a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. <laughs> right? So what happens when we take real problems and offer superficial solutions is you cheapen them, right? When you take supposed saviors and you look at them and it takes two seconds to go, no, actually, you're a part of the problem, right? <laughs> you're not the savior. You know, we can look at that, and we've all become in an internet age cynical enough to know that this thing got taken down in two minutes. You know, stats about the Kardashians and Pepsi and all that. So we're all looking for someone to make the world right. We're looking for someone who can deal with the fundamental brokenness at the heart of things. When we look around at one another, we look at our companies, we look at our corporations, we look at our best wisdom, everybody's hands are dirty, right? Everybody's hands are tainted by the principalities and powers of this world, except for the man who, walked, who rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey that day. He was the innocent one. He was the only one with the moral authority, with the righteousness, with the power to actually do something about it. And Paul says in his death, and in his resurrection, he actually has done something about it. And so now, despite all appearances to the contrary, Jesus is king. Caesar's not. The principalities and powers aren't. Jesus is king. That would have taken an incredible imagination by faith, an enlivened imagination for Paul writing from a prison cell to believe that. Right? It takes a faithful imagination for us, as weighed down as we are by sin and by unbelief, by our own struggles in this life, to believe that Jesus is king. Not sin, not sickness, not death, not the powers, Jesus. Right? It takes faith. It takes faith to look at a story of two bombed-out church buildings in Egypt and to say, no, no, no. No, that's the story. Their king is king. Their death is not going to be their death. Their death isn't going to lead to the snuffing out of the church in Egypt. Oh, no. Their death is going to lead to the cosmic kingdom of Jesus 
coming more and more in fullness in this world. That we as his church, even in bearing his suffering, participate not in defeat, but in his victory. So what does it mean for us that the principalities and powers of evil are broken and defeated? Because to be honest, it doesn't feel like it, right? It doesn't feel like it. It feels like we're still tempted. It feels like we're still oppressed. It feels like we're still opposed. The news is still filled with more bad news than good. What it, practically, what does it mean for us that we live this life with defeated enemy powers that still evidently still can, what Paul says here, take us captive? Right? They're still working. They're still behind the scenes, moving. Well, Paul says that they're defeated. They really are crushed and broken. But they are still pesky. They are still there. Their fate is sealed. But they still do oppose us. Now, Christians get weird when it comes time to talk about these things like spiritual warfare and oppression from the enemy, like if you're tempted to tune out right now, I get it. Um, when we start talking about demons and angels, it can all seem kind of too much to take in. Maybe you've uh, heard it talked about in such a way that made you think it was, sounded more like a sci-fi movie than something real. Or maybe you've just grown cynical so much about the whole thing that you just kind of like, ah, eh, you know, it's not real. C.S. Lewis had this great line where he said that there's two, there's two basic problems that human beings get into when they think about evil. Uh, when we think about Satan and demons and all that stuff. One is they, they give them too much attention. And so everything that happens in their life is given some kind of demonic, you know, symbol. I lost my car keys. Satan made me do it. Right? The other is to ignore them, is to believe that they don't exist, that they're not real. And Lewis says that Satan is equally happy with both. Right? He's equally happy with the people who live in fear of him because they're giving him far more credit than he's due. He's already defeated and he knows it, right? And he's perfectly happy if people just go on their lives blithely ignoring the fact that he's trying to oppose them and trying to work against them. And so Paul, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll make this brief because uh, Paul's really very simple in this. He doesn't go to saying, you know what, Christians, you need to know special prayers to pray. You need to know special ways to live. You need to know how to do spiritual warfare and all this stuff. You know what he says? It's about the most simple thing you could ever say to somebody. Therefore, verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Walk in Jesus. Just as you received him, just as you came to faith, so walk in him. How did, how did you come to faith? How did you come to him? I know how I did. I recognized my sin. I recognized that I was a sinner in need of a savior. I heard the, the good news that Jesus laid down his life for sinners like me, and I responded in faith. I said, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. I'm hopeless without you. And so what Paul says is, as you received him, so walk in him. So daily go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Left to myself, I'm going to continue to make a mess of my life. I'm easily tempted. I give in to sin very, very easily. Jesus, forgive me, protect me, help me to walk in you. Right Over and over, the thing that just stands out in this passage is the number of ways that Paul talks about our life in Christ. Paul says that when we are dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with him. 
that to walk in union with Jesus, to walk one with him, that in Christ we've become a new kind of person. That's what he talks about with his baptismal language, right? That just as Israel cut off, they were marked by their circumcision, cutting off the flesh and made a new kind of person. So in your baptism, you become a new kind of person together with Christ in intimate union with him, to walk in him, to live in him, to draw on that. He says the way to oppose Satan, the way to oppose his temptations, the way to oppose his affliction is to remember, his, remember this, that there is no fullness out there that you don't have in Christ. There's nothing he can pretend to offer you you don't already have. You're already perfectly loved, perfectly accepted, perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus. I have a pastor friend that, that says, Jesus do, God doesn't love you because you're like Jesus. He loves you because you're in Jesus. Right? He doesn't love you because you get good and you get righteous and you do better and better. He loves you because when he looks at your life, he sees you hidden in Christ, perfect and righteous and whole. And there is nothing beyond that that your heart needs. Let's pray.